Then I, Daniel, turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and promises and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, we've sinned. We've done wrong. We've acted wickedly and rebelled. We've turned aside from your commandments and your rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Israel, and to all Israel, those who are near, those who are far away, in all the lands to which you've driven them, because of the treachery that they've committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness, for we've rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, our God, by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Now all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, they've been poured out upon us because we've sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all of this calamity has come upon us. Yet we've not entreated or requested the favor of the Lord our God. We've not turned from our iniquities and gained insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity that has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he's done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we've sinned, we've done wickedly. O Lord, According to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. For your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes, see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord God, hear. O Lord God, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is God's word. Jared, would you join me up front? I'd love to pray for you. And then we're, I think, eager to learn more. Father, uh, one, thanks for this new space. I know it, it feels like it's getting a lot of attention, but it's new. We're settling in, but thank you for the space. Thanks for the warmth and the ability to gather as your people. 
Thank you for the flexibility and the mobility of, of your people's hearts that are loyal to one another and loyal to you above all else. Um, Father, as we uh, settle into Daniel chapter 9, I pray first for Jared. Oh, sorry, buddy. I pray first for Jared, uh, for his heart, that it would settle into the, the role of opening your word, that it would do so with humility with fearfulness before our accountability to you as teachers, but also with the excitement that comes with being part of a community devoted to you and your good teaching. Pray for the hearts of all of us as we sit and receive. Uh, Lord, honestly, for me, this passage has a lot of hard stuff, a lot of consequences, a lot of confession of wickedness and sin, and, and my heart wants to move away from that in many ways. Um, but Lord, would you remind us that it's not our righteousness we bring to the table, but we rely on your mercy. Would you help us trust you and turn our faces towards you in the same way we would turn our face toward a loving father? Amen. Trevor. Good morning. You go ahead and have a seat. Again, my name is Jared. I have an opportunity to a pastor and to serve here. We are in our second week of a series, um, four weeks, called just 28 Days of Prayer. You're probably seeing a lot of churches in the area are doing 21 days of prayer and fasting. I guess for us, we're just going to do the whole month and it's just prayer for right now. So uh, we'll get into fasting as we go. But we have some prayer guides around the room, some folks passing them out with, uh, with pens as well. Just raise a hand if you'd like one of those and, and they, will, uh, they will deliver it right to you. Um, 28 days of prayer is really about three Things. We have some aims with this. Number one, the first aim is personal calibration of our minds and of our souls to want what God wants. Last week, we talked about praying for God's glory and exulting in God's glory. So, Number one, it's a personal alignment to just, maybe prayer is hard, you have a complica complicated relationship with prayer, maybe you've just recognized that it's been squeezed out over this holiday season and you just know you need to recalibrate. So that's one of the aims. The second aim is just church alignment, that as a church community that we would align ourselves together. Biblical prayer is intensely and unapologetically communal. We're not just individuals who pray, but we're actually aiming to become more and more a praying church. We want to be praying in the same direction this month as a family. And so as you look in the, in the prayer guide at the, the themes of these daily prayers, you'll recognize that we're not on a mission of making much of ourselves or making things about ourselves. Actually, what we're trying to do with 28 Days of Prayer is get our collective hearts tuned to the first point, to want what God wants, which is ultimately his glory. And then the third aim is, this is just such a helpful tool. We want to help you learn to pray from Scripture, to pray out of Bibles that are open, praying daily off the top of our heads. It can be good, and that's one tool kind of in the kit. But I don't know if you're like me, but if you're just praying off the top of your head, pretty soon you're praying the same old things, and you're driving around the same old cul-de-sac, and it doesn't have an easy exit, and you're, you're just, maybe that fatigues you, maybe that discourages you, and then eventually we just stop praying. We get stuck in these ruts of praying for the same old things. But when we pray from our Bibles, when we pray from open Bibles, 
we never run out of prayer material. Have you ever thought about that? Prayer guides, these, these prayer guides are designed to help you pray simply from Scripture. And so when we let Scripture shape our prayers, we're really, what we're doing is we're actually letting God shape our prayers. He begins the conversation in his word. He directs us. He directs that conversation. And we don't really ever have to worry about whether or not we're praying God's will either. Have you ever just kind of wondered like, Lord, am I, is this what you want? Is what I'm praying for what you actually want? But his will is revealed through the scriptures. And so this, praying from open Bibles, is this indispensable tool in our toolkit. It's one thing, one way among many to pray. And so these guides, they'll, they'll help you to pray daily. You'll notice that the prayers are based on the passage for that Sunday, and then that begins a week of just digging in a little bit more deeply into the passage. And then each of those weeks, or each of those days, rather, are, are based on just a snippet of that passage. And there's some language there to help just direct and prompt our praying. So uh, today, uh, last week our focus was on God's glory. Today, our focus is on surrender. That's really like the big idea this morning. You could hear it in Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9. It's about surrendering. And we're in the new covenant era. Jesus Christ has come and lived and died and been buried and raised and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so we're asking him, we're surrendering ourselves to the one who has surrendered himself for us. And so that's what we're doing this morning. We want to increasingly be surrendering ourselves to the Lord Jesus through prayer. Next week is about loving Jesus and, and praying for his fame and leveraging ourselves for the sake of his fame and our community and world. And then January 28th is about praying for opportunities to partner with God in his mission and to see ourselves as true participants. There is almost nothing that is more difficult in the Christian life than prayer. There is almost nothing more important and vital in the life of a disciple and a follower of Jesus than prayer. It's the most important aspect of our life with God. It's how we speak to him. It's how we hear from him. Prayer is indispensable. And I want you to know, like, my journey with prayer is hard. Like I said this last week, it's a daily fight. It's a regular fight because I consistently push it off. Because what? Things come, life gets busy, I got to be about this thing and that thing, and prayer just seems inefficient. And yet it misses the heart of God for his people, which is communion. He wants us. He doesn't want all of our busyness. He wants us first, and then we can get busy. Daniel, uh, Trevor shared a little bit about this, but Daniel was this disciple who depended so much on prayer that he almost died for it. Like, what in your life are you willing to die for in order to keep? What in your life are you willing to put your life on the line for? Maybe it's family members. Maybe it's a job that you've been aiming for for years. Maybe it's your phone. You feel like if your phone is taken away from you, you might die. I mean, that's 
pretty pathetic, but I think some of us might have some real struggles with that. What about your prayer life? Are you willing to die? Are you willing to put your life on your line for your prayer life? I think that's a a pretty revealing question for us. Daniel was a disciple who depended so much on prayer that he was willing to die for it. He's this Hebrew teenager who's taken captive uh, to Babylon when he was was a teenager. And then around uh, 605 BC, um, Babylon is this world power. They're the supreme power. And their king, uh, this guy named Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, marched his armies on Jerusalem. And as they marched on Jerusalem, they destroyed this capital city. They destroyed the temple. They killed tens of thousands of people. And they took tens of thousands of captives back to Babylon. And so Daniel, he was a young guy. He's probably a teenager. He and some of his friends were literally Tens of thousands of people were literally marched 900 miles back to Babylon and its capital city. And Daniel and his friends, they're enlisted into the service of Nebuchadnezzar, and they're given new names. They're educated in the Babylonian ways, the worship system of Babylon. Essentially, what Babylon was trying to do was erase their Jewish heritage, That's what Babylon was doing, was erasing their identity and rebuilding them in this new Babylonian identity. And yet, Daniel and his friends, they held on to their Jewish identity. And most importantly, they held on to their worship of God, of Yahweh. At one point in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is set up and he's sold out by his co-workers. He is able to interpret dreams and he's drawn into the service of the king. And this king has this circle of wise men and enchanters and counselors and magicians and people who are advising the king. And Daniel was given great favor by Yahweh to serve Babylon and he's drawn into this inner circle. And a new king named Darius had taken over by this time. Daniel is probably in his 80s around this time. And some of his co-workers decided that they wanted to set him up and sell him out. And so they convinced this new king, Darius, to ban all prayer to foreign gods and to only direct their prayer toward the king. And they knew that Daniel was insistent on praying, that his praying life was one of the most important things about him. And so as this fool-headed law is passed in Babylon, they lie in wait for Daniel, and they know that three times a day he points himself east toward the capital city of Jerusalem. He opens his windows up and he prays. And so they waited in pray you know, to, to, to take him captive. And they, they saw him and they sold him out and turned him in. And Daniel was thrown into this den of lions. But what God did was he preserved Daniel's life miraculously. And so throughout the book by his name, you'll see these themes in Daniel where he's continuing to pray and he's continuing to ask God to make God's glory known in Babylon. And Daniel is praying and interceding, asking God to preserve the Israelites and the Hebrew people. And then in Daniel 9, which Trevor read for us, we have this long prayer from him. And at this time, he's 80. He's been in the land 65, 60-some years. This time of the Babylonian captivity is coming to an end. He's this old man, and we have this prayer from him. And what this prayer is from Daniel is a prayer of surrender. It's a prayer of repentance. It's a prayer of faith. 
from a guy who had been through so, so much. Daniel lost friends. He lost family. He lost his home. He lost his traditions. But he held on. Through decades and decades and decades, he held on. And the reason that Israel was in this situation in the first place is because, as Trevor said, they so blatantly disregarded God. And Yahweh, God, had been, uh, he had been calling the people of Israel to repentance for centuries, bearing with them in incredible mercy. And yet, he kept warning, a time is coming when a nation will come and march against you if you don't repent. And Babylon was God's judgment on Israel. And even as these Israelites are living in Babylon, they, they're, they're still like, many of them are selling out and they're switching teams and they're assimilating themselves into the Babylonian way and they're giving up their Jewish heritage in favor of comfort and in favor of power and in favor of new jobs and in favor of self-preservation and whatever else. They're giving up their Jewish heritage. And so it's in that context that Daniel prays in chapter 9. Trevor read it for us this morning, and so I'm not going to read the passage for us again, but I just want to lay before you three things out of this passage. There's a lot more uh, in it. I've preached another sermon about a year ago on Daniel chapter 9 that's completely different uh, than this one, but I, I think that there are three simple points that will greatly benefit us that are all oriented around this language of surrender. And so here they are. Number one, the first point this morning is that surrender is evidenced by our posture. You'll see that in the passage. A second point is that sin, surrender requires our confession. It requires us to actually name the ways that we fall short of the Lord. And it requires our repentance, which is a changing of our mind and eventually a changing of our way of life. And then third, surrender is made sweet by the mercy of God. We do not have to fear surrendering to him, though we do. We do fear it. Our flesh is at war with the Spirit in us and with the voice of God in us. And so often we do fear surrender, and yet it's made sweet by the mercy of God. So point number one, surrender is evidenced by our posture. Look at verse three. When, when you picture a person who is surrendering, what do you see? What do you imagine? What are they doing when you picture somebody who's surrendering? Maybe you see them like with their hands out, ready to take the cuffs right? Or maybe you see him like kneeling down, hands behind the head, or maybe you see a person who has surrendered with their head hung low, or maybe you, maybe you see, you probably see them in some sort of a physical posture of surrender. A true posture of surrender is almost always vulnerable. Whenever we're in a position of surrendering, it's almost always vulnerable. Look at his posture in, in verse 3 of Daniel 9. He says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And so he's seeking mercy, he's foregoing food, he's fasting, he's changed his clothes out for sackcloth. Picture a burlap sack, it's itchy, it's scratchy, it's ugly, it's crazy uncomfortable. It's meant to, to show this picture of his internal misery and his internal mourning. And then he's taking ashes from warming fires or cooking fires around him, and he's rubbing it and on his head and on his face. And so literally, Daniel looks like hell. He, 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 he means to, because internally, 
That's how he's feeling, and he's showing that externally. His posture is showing that. And on, on, on the surface, maybe all of that doesn't appear all that vulnerable to you, but as you, uh, as you the, the first thing that we see from Daniel is that he, he actually turns his face to the Lord. That precedes everything else. He turns his face to the Lord. And so maybe that phrase doesn't appear all that vulnerable to you, but as you read what comes next, the seeking of mercy and the sackcloth and ashes and fasting, you recognize that he is making himself incredibly vulnerable. He is, he's saying that he and Israel have sinned and they've not listened to God and not listened to the prophets that God has sent. And because of that, shame. They're ashamed. They're living in open shame. At least Daniel is. When you and I feel shame, one of the hardest things imaginable is to look people in the face. One of the hardest things imaginable when we're in the grip of shame is to look people in the eyes. What do we do when we're feeling shame? We avert our eyes. We typically look down. We might even turn our backs. All of this is a way of hiding. Hiding is anti-surrender. Hiding means we're actively trying to get away. Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, when they felt the shame of their rebellion against God, what did they do? They hid, right? But what was God's response to them? What did God do? He goes looking for them, calling out to them. He finds them. Their faces are turned away from him. In their need, God pursued them. His face was turned toward their faces. That's something that shame needs. Shame needs to be met face to face. Shame needs to be looked in the eyes by a loving friend. When my kids are in trouble, when my kids are, are feeling bad, they often won't look at me. Like they'll run up to the room, I'll hear a door close loudly, and then I'll go in and I'll find them. And I have to ask my kids when they're in the grip of shame to look me in the eyes. Sometimes I actually physically have to lift their chins up so that I can see them in their faces. But what happens when I do that is I affirm my love and as I affirm my care for them, you can almost see the shame clear in real time. Have you experienced this? A couple of hands. Like, it's a pretty amazing thing. Daniel, as he's turning his face toward the Lord, this is an act of defiance. In verse 3, Daniel is not defying God. Daniel is defying what keeps him from closeness with God. That's what he's doing when he says, then I turned my face to the Lord. Daniel defies his shame by turning to God. It's resistance. There's something in him saying, hide, move away from. But what Daniel is doing is he's actually moving toward. He's resisting that. And Daniel, what he does is he faces east, which means that he's looking out over a distance of like 900 miles toward Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is where the temple was. And the temple is the place of God's presence where God was meeting with men and mediating his presence to them. And as Daniel is looking east toward the temple, 
he's like longing, like, oh God, if you were near. But the reality of who God is, is he's omnipresent. He's always present. He's everywhere all at one time. So there in Babylon, in this place that seems so, so far away from God. Like, God, you're 900 miles away. No, no, no. Like, sometimes our shame and sometimes our guilt preaches that to us. Like, I am so, you are so far from me. I am so far from you. But with the reality, as Daniel is praying, right there in this wicked city of Babylon, God is there. He's present with him. He's listening to Daniel. He's facing him. Surrender is evidenced by our posture as we face God, as we turn our faces to him in hope. The second point is that surrender requires us to take full responsibility. Surrender, in order for it to be surrender, requires us to take full responsibility. Look at verse 4. With Daniel's face turned toward God in the way that he knew how, Daniel does not justify his actions. He doesn't blame others. He doesn't blame his circumstances. He doesn't downplay. He doesn't minimize. He doesn't deflect. He accepts full responsibility. And as you'll read on, Daniel not only accepts responsibility for himself, but he'll actually accept responsibility for the whole nation of Israel. He sees himself as a a representative interceding for Israel. This is like priestly work. He's mediating on behalf of the people of Israel. And if you go down and you look at verse 20, which we didn't read this morning, verse 20 uh, says, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin, notice the and, and the sin of my people Israel, and, pre- and presenting my plea before the Lord God. From verses 4 all the way to 19, Daniel spends something like 560 English words. There's less in the Hebrew, but it takes us 560 English words to translate verses 4 through 19 to get the gist of what Daniel's prayer of surrender is about. And in verses 4 through 19, he uses over 40 first-person plural pronouns. So he's saying things like we and us and our. He's including himself in this group of the Israelites. And one thing about Daniel is he's used powerfully in the history of God's people and in Israel's history, but the Bible never presents Daniel with any shortcomings whatsoever in his character or his conduct. Whenever he is spoken of in the scriptures, including the book that's written by his name, there's no misconduct There's no sin mentioned. There's nothing mentioned about that. And yet, over and over, Daniel includes himself as one of the masses needing Yahweh's forgiveness. It's not as though Daniel didn't have sin. He did, and he outs himself in verse 20. I'm confessing my sin and the sin of my people. So what what is this? What is that? It's humility. He's posturing himself in humility. Now, when you and I sin, we don't necessarily have to take responsibility for other people's sin. Though there are good reasons for us to intercede on, the behalf, on behalf of our families and to confess sin and say, Lord, forgive us or our communities or our nation. We don't necessarily have to do that, though. But, but we do have to 
take responsibility for our own sin, for the ways that we fall short of God's standard, which is Christ-likeness. How are we doing with that? The perfection of Christ is the standard. And all of us fall short of it. And therefore, all of us sin. And we need to be willing to take responsibility for all of our sin, the sin at least that we can see. Our culture is, I don't know if you've noticed, but deeply sick. Blame, deflection, like so normalized. Our politicians, our pastors, our CEOs, our community leaders, our athletes, our celebrities, almost everybody culturally, uh, considers it best practice when they have fallen incredibly short of whatever standard it was that they needed to keep, they, they consider it best practice to hire a PR rep who will craft an intentionally vague apology that stops short of accepting full responsibility. You see this, right? You see this in the headlines? Is, am I the only one who thinks that? Because you're all just looking at me. It's like we're more concerned with outlasting the three-week news cycle than we are in taking full responsibility for our actions and for our words and for the impact of what we have done. So let me ask you a question. Is, is that how the church of Jesus is supposed to roll? Are we supposed to follow the, the world's way, right? Are we supposed to blend in? Like, are we wearing camo? just to blend in like everybody else? Or is our way of life supposed to be radically different? Like everybody's wearing camo and we're rolling in Hunter's Orange. That's what the church is, that's how we're supposed to show up in the world. The first impact of our sin is always against God. Whenever we fall short of God's standard, the impact of our sin is always first against our holy God. So men, harsh words to your wife. You've all been there. Any of you men who are married, you have exchanged some harsh words with your wife, myself included. You have first sinned against God in a number of ways. You've wounded his daughter. You've operated from a prideful heart. You've disregarded God's command to love others before yourself. And we're not even done with the ways that we have sinned against him. Men, you owe her an apology, but you owe God the first apology. The two go hand in hand, but one comes first. One and then the other. And here's the thing. When we see the ways in which we sin first as an act of treason and rebellion against our holy God, and when we surrender to him, when we humbly seek his pardon and his power to change, the first thing his spirit compels us to do is apologize to the humans that we have wounded and to take responsibility for our words and our actions and our impact. Can I get an amen? Because of Jesus, my identity is saint. 
If you're a disciple of Jesus, your identity is saint and you sin. You're not a sinner. That is not your identity if you're a follower of Jesus. Your identity is saint. But the reality is, is that I still sin constantly, daily, repeatedly. And so it's not enough for me to know the gospel and to recite the truth of the gospel, which is good. I need to recite the truth of God's mercy for me in my time of need. I need that truth, that objective truth, but that actually stops short of what I need. What is required is for me to remember the gospel in the presence of my God. I sin against him and I sin against people. I remember the gospel in his presence by talking to him, surrendering to him, turning my face to him in prayer, vocalizing the ways that I have dishonored him, taking responsibility. The devil didn't make me do it. The whiskey didn't make me do it. The hangry didn't make me do it. The stress at work didn't make me do it. I am responsible before God, period, full stop. And so are you. And so whenever it's my fault, whenever it's our fault, whenever it's your fault, it's our responsibility then to come before him, but it's also our privilege to surrender ourselves into the presence of our holy God with our repentance. In the new covenant era, we don't have to come with the sacrifices and the blood of bulls and goats. We come into the presence of God pleading the blood of Jesus Christ, our once-for-all sacrifice for our sin. We come in surrender, simultaneously pointing to Jesus Christ, who is the mercy, the overflowing mercy of God toward us. And so we do not have to fear surrender. We don't have to fear it, which leads me to the third point here. Surrender is made sweet by the mercy of God. You do not have to fear surrender. You can surrender. To surrender to God is to gain mercy. Think about it. We're exchanging our surrender for mercy. One of the reasons that Daniel surrendered so quickly and owned his sin so deeply is not because he was a coward, not because he was weak, but because he believed so deeply in the loyal and steadfast love of God. Look again at verse 4. Did you notice that before Daniel even got to confessing, he began with remembering? Did you see that? Because of God's character, Daniel didn't have to fear confessing his sin. He goes, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandment. God keeps covenant. He keeps steadfast love. In our English, that phrase, steadfast love, in our English, we see two words there because that's what it takes to translate it. But in Hebrew, steadfast love is the word hesed. Steadfast love is a great way to translate it in English. It's a word that signals God's loyalty to us, his obligation to us, his faithfulness to us, his goodness to us, his graciousness to us, his godly action toward us, even though we're undeserving. And this word has said is used 250, 249 times in the Hebrew Bible to describe who God is. That word alone, has said. It describes God in the Hebrew Bible in our Old Testaments. It does not describe us. 
This is just one of the words or the phrases that the Hebrew uses to describe God's character. We're not even talking about his mercy. We're not talking about his compassion. We're not talking about any of that. His grace, we're not talking about that. It's just this one is used 249 times. And this word has said, this steadfast love is a word that kicks against our tendency to believe that we need to hide from God. That in our sin and our falling short of him, that he won't be merciful to us or good to us. Our instinct to feel terror when we sin is an accurate instinct. It's an accurate instinct. Because our sin, when we blatantly rebel against God, when it remains sweet to us, when it remains, when we love and protect it and cling to it, when we refuse to confess it or own it or reject it, the end result, the scriptures say that the wages of our sin is death. Sin brings death into our reality and sin will bring God's wrath upon humanity. Why? Because if a person refuses to surrender ourselves to God's mercy, there's nobody else to stand in the place for us. There's nobody else to take responsibility for us. An old-time theologian and and preacher, J.C. Ryle, he said this, praying and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin or sin will choke prayer. And yet, if we confess our sin in prayer and we trust in the faithful, the said love of God to pardon us, God has provided a mediator between his wrath for sin and our responsibility for it. He's provided a mediator who stands in the middle for us, the man Christ Jesus, who is God, and that means that God himself is our merciful mediator. One of Jesus' disciples, John, he wrote the Gospel of John and he wrote a few letters as well to the church. He, he writes in 1 John 1, 6-9, he says, If we say we've got fellowship with God while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as God himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from our sin. If we say we have no sin or if we refuse to surrender, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful, steadfast love. He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One of Jesus' apostles, a guy named Paul, was writing to a young pastor named Timothy, and he wrote to Timothy, and he said this, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. God will not turn away anyone who surrenders. He will not turn anyone who surrenders to him away. This morning, maybe you, uh, you, you find yourself in this place of, you've, you've just been like, you've been holding back. You, you, you recognize, I'm a disciple, I'm a follower of Jesus, and yet I've been holding myself back. Or maybe you 
are not yet a follower of Jesus, but you're attracted to his teaching. You're attract, there's something about his people. There's something that seems to be happening in you and your mind and your heart, your soul, your circumstances. You're a seeker of God, but you haven't yet given yourself to God. You haven't yet surrendered yourself to him. I want to invite you to, to do that, to surrender yourself to the Lord Jesus. If you're a disciple, and yet you know you've been creating some distance, pulled back, I want to ask you to have courage in the room, even right now, to let your brothers and sisters pray for you. And, and, and the way that I want to invite you to do that is at any point in the next 30 seconds, would you just like, would you just slip a hand up? You're not going to have to say anything about your circumstances. Nobody's going to ask you questions. Nobody's going to interview you. But maybe the people around you could just lay a hand on your shoulder and just intercede and just come to the living God on your behalf and just pray that he would meet you in your need and that he would answer you in the way that you need him to answer you. And so if that's you, would you just slip a hand up in the air and just, just hold it up for a moment? I know it's exposing. It takes courage. Ain't nobody judging you. I see you. I see you. I see you. Give you a few more moments. If you've seen a hand go up, I see you. If you've seen a hand up, I see you. If you've seen a hand up around you, church, I want to just create some space, 45 seconds or so this morning, for you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to just pray. Just pray out loud where you are. Pray under your breath where you are. And just ask the Lord to help us to be a surrendering people. If you saw a hand go up, pray for the people around you. Intercede for them. Would you do that? I know this can feel so vulnerable. And so we come on your behalf to seek the God and to seek the God of uh, the nations and creation on your behalf, brother or sister in the room. Father, would you hear our prayers of surrender? Maybe they, we haven't even been able to get them out of our lips and yet they're in our hearts and they're in our minds and they're coming to you. Would you turn your face to your people and would you hear? And would you pardon us for the things that we've put our hands to or given our mouths to or our attitudes or our bodies? Would you forgive us? Would you offer us mercy? And would you give us power to change, to keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the shame, 
of the cross, you decided to pursue the joy of redeeming your people instead. Though there was a moment in the garden when you wavered and you, you, you said, take this cup, the, the pain of losing relationship with your father and going to the cross on our behalf was almost more than you could bear. You steeled and resolved yourself to come for us. And so if that is our God, if you'll go that far for us, we know that in our moments of shame, in our moments of guilt, in our moments of wavering, when we're on the verge of surrender, we know that you will not turn us away. And so we give ourselves to you, and we ask for your power to help us follow you and honor you. And we pray this in the name of our Father, and in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Love you.